This is the Bobcast, a podcast exploring Reformed theology through the works of Herman Bovink. Hi there, Bob Squad. Welcome to another episode of Bobcast. We're glad that you can join us here again uh, as we continue in this discussion of uh, the doctrine of the Trinity from Wonderful Works of God. Let's go ahead and crack into it. Crack into it. Let us get crack-a-lackin', as the chillins say. First off, we didn't introduce ourselves. Well, that's the first order of uh, of Kraken. Yeah. So, I am Andrew Smith. And I am uh, Caleb Castro, your crack master. But not that crack. Dude. <laughs> wow. That took a dark turn. <laughs> so, the Trinity. Bobcast. I do want to go back, though, and spend a moment on something that we did talk about, but I think it's worth talking about in a little more detail, was this idea of double procession. Yes. Because when we look at double procession, we're actually looking at one of the longest-running and most bitter, divisive issues in the Christian world. And it's the main deciding theological issue that distinguishes the Eastern Church from the Western Church, that the Western Church confesses this double procession, the procession of the Holy Spirit from the Father and the Son, whereas in the Eastern Church, they tend to say that he proceeds, the Holy Spirit proceeds only from the Father. This is a controversy that is ancient and deep, and it is important because this does affect our doctrine of God, I would just point again to, for instance, this text that Bob Inc. uses, Romans 8, 9, where he the Spirit is addressed as both the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ. That is the classic proof text for double procession. Now, there's been something of a tendency in even reform circles to want to maybe get more comfortable with the East, but at the end of the day, we confess the double procession. It's in our Belgic Confession, for instance, which affirms double procession directly, uh, as well as affirms it by affirming the creeds. So this is something that we have and need to deal with. To add on to the nature of the debate there, there's, on one hand, an understanding we can take with the uh, Eastern Orthodox of what they're trying to do. They were concerned, basically, in one extent, that uh, the language that the West ended up using for the double procession uh, ends up suggesting two originating principles, or, or basically that there's two main substances of God, binitarianism rather than a trinitarianism. So there's two there's two originating principles and then the third subordinate and the subordinate is the spirit. So maybe some of us are, are again, as Andrew mentioned earlier, familiar with the debates regarding uh, the error of subordination of the sun. Well, the East say that Western Christianity has a subordination of the spirit because of double procession. Uh, additionally, their beef is actually part of a broader context of a developing power of the Roman uh, bishop or the pope in early medieval Europe. 
and a council coming together, uh, the Council of Toledo, in making a pronouncement in, in addition of this statement of saying procession also comes of the sun, uh, filioque uh, is the phrase, filioque, uh, filioque clause, that he proceeds uh, of the father and the son. This being in addition to the Nicene Creed. Yes, sorry about that. I forgot to mention that. So this this being an, adi- an addition to a very major creed that was used and was meticulously crafted in its clauses in every single word to make sure it is properly reflecting Scripture's teaching over and against Arian heresy. We'll come back to that and various other heresies over the course of hundreds and hundreds of years. Well, the East wasn't around for this Council of Toledo, and that, putting it a little bit simplistically, that that chafed them a bit, and they would question the language of the filioque, of the sun, this double procession. There is context in the debate. However, on the other hand, uh, what the East does is, the East is very committed to maintaining an illustration for the sake of the unity of the Godhead. They really like the language of the Father as the Fonz. Okay? Not, not like Fonzi, uh, you know, Arthur Fonzarelli from Happy Days, but as Fonz, uh, Latin for Aww. the fount, the fountainhead, the originating cause or root, the originating principle or actor of uh, the initiator who begets the sun and who spirates the Holy Spirit. Uh, this emphasizes something of a divine monarchy. Th- this emphasis on, on basically unity creates a hint of subordinationism themselves. They place the Father over and above as the originating cause and of all things. It's very tricky, though, because the language tilts to this ontological subordinationism. Though they're not quite advocating that, they are speaking still of economic terms, to use the more technical phrases here, because this is a bit of a technical argument there. Um, they are afraid that the Western language creates a subordination of the spirit. So in some ways, their concerns, or at least the, the basis of their arguments, can be understandable. But as Andrew said, we still confess the Nicene Creed. That is what it says. That's what our confessions say. And we say that the doctrine of double procession is true, whereas the East would reject that. So there has been some movements uh, and attempts in this the recent century uh, and, and presently to tinker a bit with this language of uh, procession, of double procession, there's been various uh, suggestions and whatnot. One particular notable one uh, is in appealing to uh, actually an Eastern theologian uh, from way back in the day, uh, about 8th, 9th century, uh, John of Damascus. Uh, he had suggested that the spirit proceeds from the father through the son, or what we call perfilium. This is actually a pretty suitable proposition because... To say that he is of the Father uh, speaks to the origin being of the Father, but through the Son as being a procession still of instrumentality. So the, the main thing here is, is noting that there is a double procession, but that what we have always understood in the West is that it's two different kinds of processions. It is this economic distinction here. 
a procession of origin from the father and a median procession or an instrumental procession from the son. But you actually see Bavink state this in page 138, the end of that first paragraph, the last sentence. He says, uh, just as all things are of the father and through the son, they all exist and rest in the Holy Spirit. There is uh, the implication of the technical language here that understands this. And this actually then shows the unity of the economy of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that the Father is originator, the Son is the administrator or the authority, the power, and that the Holy Spirit is the efficator, the beatifier in which or by which all things are perfected. This goes back to what we were talking about earlier, I think maybe states a little more clearly what we were talking about creation and when we're talking about the incarnation you see that reflected in what each of the three persons are doing in those works noting that very that unity of this work and uh and that this is the way that god reveals himself it also tells us of this unity not only of god for the work but of his unity of his persons according to his divine being uh, or in other words the trinity is this reflecting of who god is uh, which we have been stating over the past couple episodes, but to put it in another way, through Bobbing's words here, a couple sentences down, I, what I just quoted on page 138, Father, Son, and Spirit are in their oneness and their distinction, the fullness of the perfected revelation of God. Just so, too, according to the apostles, the whole good and salvation of man is contained in the love of the Father, the grace of the Son, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. The good pleasure, the foreknowledge, the power, the love, the kingdom, and the strength of the Father's. The mediatorship, reconciliation, grace, and redemption are the sons. Regeneration, renewal, sanctification, and redemption are the spirits. There is this working that is complementary but also in union of one another according to their one divine essence, their one divine being. I believe Augustine actually used the, the phrase in describing this. He has, he has a classic work on this called uh, On the Trinity, uh, quite appropriately. Uh, de Trinitate. Augustine has this quote in here that really hits at this. Basically, the father begets the son, communicates him eternally and necessarily. The eternal generation of the son ultimately speaks of this love of the father for the son. Okay, so that the father eternally begets the son in this eternally eternal generation communicates to us this love of the father for the son, which is a reality for them in their relationship uh, of personhoods too. But this eternal generation is reciprocated just uh, in eternal procession, all right? So the spirit is communicated intratrinitarily, and this attests, so Augustine says, to the love of God. Uh, another way that he puts it is basically that the bond of the spirit between the father and son is reciprocating love. The bond between father and the spirit is this reciprocating love in fellowship in the Holy Spirit. This is not putting it into, say, a social Trinitarian terms. This is not to put it, make it as a, a mushy, gushy thing, but that in economically speaking, that is what's really being reflected. It is an intra-Trinitarian love that is then also communicated to us and that we participate and share in. Love and fellowship is not the essence of God. That is not social Trinitarianism. What makes God isn't the fellowship. However, it does display 
a fellowship in love, of which the Holy Spirit is evidence of this. Without this bond of fellowship and love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you do not have God. There is no communion of the Father if you do not have the Son, and there is no salvation if you do not have the Son, who gives himself to us and works for our salvation, which he accomplishes through the Holy Spirit to give us communion, to unite us with him. Without this Trinitarian work, there is no salvation. That's part of the issues of, say, the Muslim perception of Allah, their insistence upon this one God, no Trinity. It's absent of love. That's probably a good segue into heresy. Usually is. <laughs> so on pages 139 through 141, Bavink does address some of the history of the development of the doctrine of the Trinity and the heresies concerning the doctrine of the Trinity, which are really inseparable. A lot of the theology of the Trinity that we have, a lot of this doctrine came in response to heresies came in response to conflicts and crises within the church where an issue came up a certain teacher arose who would teach a certain position it would cause controversy in the church and there was a need for the church to formulate its doctrine and speak to these issues more clearly so one that comes up is arianism <gasps> dun 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 yeah now, this is not to be confused with another kind of Arianism. <laughs> what kind of Arianism? <sighs> Do we really have to go there? Why did I even say this? <laughs> uh, not Edward Norton, uh, American, uh, what is it called? American, America Citizen. American History American X. History X. Good movie. Not that kind of Arianism. Not Edward Norton. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> um, wow. Um, no, Arianism was a heresy. By a man named Arius, because why not? <gasps> dun, dun, dun. So Arianism rose in the 3rd century, and the debate over it continued into the 4th century. Arius taught a form of subordination. His famous phrase, there was a time when the sun was not. So that at some point, the sun came into being out of non-being, was essentially a created being. So this is subordinationism. The Son is a lesser created subordinate being to God the Father. Now, it took a while to respond. This did not go away quickly or easily. The first major ecumenical council of the church, the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, was called by the Emperor Constantine to deal with this issue of Arianism, and it is there that they formulated the first draft of the Nicene Creed. It doesn't come into its more full form until the Council of Constantinople in 381. But basically, this was the first major controversy and first major heresy concerning the Trinity that the Church addressed. And they condemned Arianism. They affirmed the equality, the co-equality, and co-eternality of the persons over and against Arius. Now, that's not to say that once this happened that everything just went away. Even after the Council of Nicaea, there was major pushback by the Arians. Arianism had become popular. It had become widespread to the point where it actually, for a time, seemed to be the majority position of the church. And defenders of Trinitarianism, so perhaps the most famous one of the time being Athanasius, basically 
were pushed to the margin. Athanasius himself had to run for his life and hide a few times for his continuing to affirm Trinitarian doctrine over and against Arian doctrine. However, eventually, through the labors of Athanasius, contramundum against the world, a famous saying about him, and others, Trinitarianism did win the day. They had this second council at Constantinople, reaffirmed Trinitarianism, and seemed to put down Arianism for good, at least within the realm of the Little C Catholic Church. Just a couple of notes on there. First of all, Contramundum sounds way cooler than Against the World. Second, that on a serious note, this speaks volumes to something. Uh, don't let what Andrew just said pass by without a little bit of a, of a gasp or thought. Andrew had said that for a time, it seemed Arianism had won the day even after the council had met. Of the First Council of, of Nicaea. Arianism did appear to be the majority for a time. Let that sink in. Okay, so even early in the church, just a few couple hundred years after the apostles were walking around, okay, uh, developing, uh, planting the foundation of the church, if you will, uh, mixing two metaphors, but whatever. When you look around yourself today and you see... So many threats to Christianity. You see aberrant doctrines, troublesome doctrines uh, in the church or hitting Christians. They're, they're falling into all the traps of worldliness, let's just say, for various things of critical theory uh, and intersectionality. Things that are, that, that are high and strong errors. Nonetheless, God's truth must win out. That he is sovereign. He knows what's going on. He ordained for these things to occur. And in these contexts in which heresies arise, the Holy Spirit illuminates those things of Scripture, showing us the clarity of his doctrine and leads us in the articulation of it. Not in a, you know, scripturally, uh, oh, you know, uh, people are being inspired way. Uh, not as a continuing revelation, but God preserves his truth and uses his churches to then understand rightly, create the dividing line, preserve and protect the truth, and then articulate that truth from scripture in uh, the creeds and confessions. Let us really appreciate that. And we've said it before where the Apostles' Creed is something that uh, for many of us, we can just kind of rattle off rote memory as if it's no big deal every single, you know, once a week for many of us uh, in our churches, in the Reformed churches. Or we can, you know, just never look at the confessions in the back of our books or the back of our Psalters and whatnot. These things came out in these contexts of great controversy in affronts by the devil through uh, wicked and false teachers. Sometimes those teachings seem like they're going to win, but God is honing his church through it and causing his truth to stand clearer and brighter above false teachings. Arianism was the height of heresy in the church's history. Who knows if things today will get to that same sort of level, but this is at least an encouragement that the truth is vindicated because it is God's. The final brief note, which I'll actually hand back to Andrew here, is Andrew, uh, you mentioned one hero of the Nicene Council with uh, Athanasius, but you forgot to mention the other great hero. Uh, if you want to share with us 
my favorite hagiographical story uh, or favorite legend about a certain jolly old Saint Nick. Yeah, hagiographical as in we don't really know if it's true. <laughs> it's uh, disputed that, yes, yeah, Saint Nicholas was actually a delegate to the Council of Nicaea and it is alleged to have had a physical altercation with Arius over his doctrine of subordinationism that St. Nicholas essentially clocked him for it. <laughs> What's not hagiographical is that uh, Arius apparently in uh, stress and fear over the pronouncement that the council was going to be making against his position had to go to the bathroom, went to the back of behind uh, the meeting place. <laughs> And uh, basically pooped himself to death. Um, that's where they found him. We're not editing that out. Keep it there. It's funny. Also scary and sad. But yeah, so that's Arius. What's next, Andrew? <laughs> I got one more thing, though. <laughs> okay. On that. So Arianism lost, although the, a sad corollary to the fact that God does providentially permit true doctrine to win out. The flip side is these problems never really completely go away. Mm -hmm. And you still see forms of Arianism occurring in our day. For instance, the Jehovah's Witnesses teach a theology that is basically Arian. <laughs> uh, they teach that the sun is a lesser created being. There's other groups that do similarly. Uh, one is Iglesia Ni Cristo. They're based in the Philippines. They had a <laughs> lot of uh, facilities and stuff up in Alaska when I was up there. We would actually see a lot of their stuff. But they, similarly to the Jehovah's Witnesses, also believe in a form of subordinationism. So, although it has lost out in the church Catholic, Arianism is still around. It is still out there. Yes. Be on guard. Yes. Though we do have now scripture, creeds, and confessions that very strongly show and reject their errors indeed uh as even actually even in the day of reformation uh, it's not like this is just a sudden resurgence but they've always been around uh to andrew's point again in the days of the reformation there was a group uh called the uh Socinians, uh following the ideas and teachings of a, of a italian theologian named Sozini, who uh, was teaching what is, again, essentially Arianism. This was picked up later on also by the Unitarians and whatnot, so they pop up frequently, is the point there. Yeah. So our next major heresy is Sabellianism, or That's modalism, Patrick. Modalism, yes. <laughs> Doesn't quite have the colorful history that Arianism does, as far as its rise and the steps taken to eradicate it. But basically, modalism is the idea that rather than these three distinct and co-eternal and co-equal persons, that in fact there is one being, one person that is God who in different times manifests himself in these different modes. So, for instance, in the Old Testament, God was the Father, and then in the New Testament, mode changed to the Son, and then at Pentecost changed once again to the Holy Spirit. It's pretty easy to tackle this, actually, when you look at, for instance, texts like John 17. Who is Jesus praying to? If modalism is true, why would he be praying to the Father? He was the Father. There is no distinction between him and the Father. It just makes passages like that incoherent, really. 
Yeah, today there are still groups that will hold to uh, this modalism or Sabellianism. Oneness Pentecostals are, are some pretty uh, popular ones. I mean, they do explicitly, intentionally deny the Trinity. But basically, it's also elements of modernism that has held on to this in some ways, too, that unintentionally uh, or rather unknowingly at times slips into this. Again, at times people are well-meaning you know, to teach a, a difficult concept, as the Trinity is, to people, trying to make sense of a difficult concept and boiling it down. Now, that wasn't necessarily Sibelius's motive or the uh, one is Pentecostals who intentionally rejected. But some people try, again, to simplify that doctrine, making those analogies we spoke of earlier, of, you know, various states of matter with water, of the eggs, light, so on and so forth, um, or simply to divide up reductionistically various stages and manifestations of God in history. Bobbing says uh, in this section that at one point that he came in the form of the Father, and God was operating as creator and lawgiver in that period. Then he worked as redeemer in the form of the Son uh, with the apostolic church uh now he works in the form of the holy spirit as the recreator of the church so from basically pentecost until today comes in different forms what's dubious in this though to lay it out point blank is on one end uh the three persons actually bobbing notes just a little further down here that the three persons of the godhead are robbed of their independence to put it in his phrasing on another end, though, as well, you don't truly know who God is. Why is God going and acting in these three modes? Which is the real God? What, what's his real attributes, his real nature? What is he trying to reveal? You have an impartial God basically cut up into different modes according to when he feels like changing for a season. So this this is like a god of change. This is a god that can't necessarily be said is from everlasting to everlasting and unchangeable, immutable. It's a, a god that is unknown and completely inscrutable, even in his revelation. That A god that basically hides behind forms, a god that hides behind masks. You kind of end up with, okay, well, which is the real god here? This is the beauty then of asserting the Trinitarian truth, that he is God, Father, Holy Spirit, revealing himself in unity of his works. Yeah. And showing his uh, one uh, his one deity. This is the one God. So on page 140, in talking about these heresies and some of the historical resistance to them, Bavink lays out some terminology and some language. And I think we have probably hit most of this so far, so it should come as review, perhaps. But some of the words he gives, for instance, the church speaking of the essence of God. So the essence, what belongs to his being. And then the three persons in that essence of being. So the subsistences as distinguished from the essences. And that a distinguished from the essences as what we could say, this manner of, of existence expressed being of those subsistences. Right. Yeah. Obviously, of course, the term itself, Trinity, this was first, the first record we have of it being used was by the church father Tertullian in the second century, uh, but later becoming widespread and codified in the councils and the creeds. We also have essential and personal characteristics. So those attributes that belong to the essence of God. So we talked about those previously when we looked at the 
the one being that is God, or then the personal characteristics, those that belong to the person. So things like procession, spiration, those kinds of things that are unique to one of the persons. Uh, talking about eternal generation and procession, again, we've already hit on that before. So this language is, it is our native language as the church. There's a reason we have it. There's a reason we keep it. It helps us to make these distinctions that those who have gone before us have given us to help us to understand these things. Uh, quite generally, these words are uh, pretty static uh, in their understanding, uh, in their technical senses when we're dealing with the doctrine of the Trinity. Because at times you do come across certain words or phrases that have kind of changed in meanings over time or, or the words have changed to describe them such as even in, in development of the Doctrine of the Covenant uh, that we'll get to later in maybe six years, ten years. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> some language in the Doctrine of the Covenant as it was being formulated, articulated in the Reformation and post-Reformation period uh, has changed over time as understandings clarified and, and new ways to express it were understood, new distinctions could be made, and so on and so forth. So phrases can change over time. Generally... Those of this discussion of the Trinity have been pretty stable for quite a while, uh, for centuries and centuries. So that's a good indication of what you want to try to stick to. Um, if, if you're looking at digging more into the doctrine of the Trinity, you want to stick with some of these technical or with, with these technical distinctions here. At the same time, also being aware that we're, we're in something of a debate right now in the church uh, that. A lot of modern evangelicalism and, and theologians are kind of tinkering again with the nature of the Trinity and looking to recast it in new lights. Um, so that's where, where we're going to head to next. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about the what, this doctrine of the Trinity, the language of the Trinity, some of the errors and heresies. But now, uh, just briefly, as we've spent more time on this than we probably have, so what? Why does this matter? What do we do with this? Why should we care? And Boving treats that in the final few pages of the chapter, pages 141 to 144. So just briefly, the doctrine of the Trinity maintains the unity and the diversity in the being of God. I think this case has been pretty well made in that we look at how things break down when you even change just like one little aspect of the Trinity uh, one one attribute of the person or something like that, the whole thing just kind of falls apart. You suddenly are unable to account for the entire the entirety of scriptural evidence. If you lose something, if you change something, it just doesn't work. Also, we see that through this doctrine, the church stands against heresies. We've talked about some heresies, but Bob Inc. here talks about some more. He talks about deism, which we've talked about before, where God is distant from the world. He's not involved. He basically set the world and forgot the world, uh, doesn't, doesn't bother with it anymore. We see in the Trinity, we see in this economic Trinity, uh, the Trinity's purpose of redemption a God who is very near, a God who does condescend to us, a God who who is very interested in us. We see it against things like pantheism, everything is God. With the Trinity, we make clear distinctions between what is and what is not God, and who God is and what God is like. Against Judaism, 
This was obviously the issue from the very beginning. Jesus came as a Jew into the Jewish world where the unity of God had always been paramount. And yet with the Trinity, we are able to account for how God is one and yet God is also three. And then finally, the Trinity over and against all forms of paganism, any worship of idols, any worship of false gods, because it does maintain God's unity. There is not room for anything else yes we affirm we affirm uh we reject the error of the socinians <laughs> so it's uh, all this attests actually uh to very much what bobbing has said in previous chapters of the dilemma of imminence uh versus transcendence a god that is so far beyond and yet at the same time a god who is closer and nearer than a friend and the way that that is truly and properly accounted for displayed abundantly in scripture ultimately is in this doctrine of the trinity we have basically all we need in this that of uh, considering our god uh, and father uh, by whom nothing can occur without his wondrous decrees that there is no surety of the son uh, and his uh, authority and kingship lordship all over all things and the power of the spirit who is ministering and perfecting all things. Uh, so even in our day-to-day lives, the things that we are endeavoring in, in whatever vocation we are, you know, whether you're a cook, uh, an engineer, you know, a pastor, uh, an accountant, uh, a scientist, uh, an artist, whatever, all these things that we are involved in, the spirit is working through uh, in his people, particularly, that they're, uh, and is working them towards their appropriate ends that have been finalized and accomplished through the son and declared by the father and all things work together for his purposes yep so we have a security in these things the trinity is ultimately in other words is the starting place uh the starting doctrine if you will that this first and fundamental doctrine for trying to make sense of this world around us our relationship to it and then who we are as people it resolves the issue as some philosophers call it, the problem of the one and the many or of unity and diversity the whole problem is this question of who are we what's this world around us what's my purpose well the starting place of that is reflected in the doctrine of the trinity in what he's doing in us and in this world so that is chapter 10 of the wonderful works of god on the doctrine of the trinity we hope that it has been worthwhile we hope you've learned something As always, you can reach out to us if you have any questions, comments, complaints, accusations of heresy, technical schematics, really just whatever you'd like to send us or tell us about. So we thank you for listening, and until next time, Toadzines. Toadzines. Thank you for listening to Bobcast. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and leave a five-star review where you get your podcasts. For the latest Bobcast news and updates, visit Bobcast.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Bobcast is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Subscribe to the Society of Reformed Podcasters feed to hear more great theological content. Music is City of God by Rudy Manrique. We hope you'll join us again next time.